This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Colossians, and we'll be reading from chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. If you'd like to follow along in the Black Pew Bibles in front of you, you can turn to um, page 984. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let me pray for us once more. Father, we thank you for this precious word that was just read to us. And now we pray your spirit down. We pray for your spirit to come to teach us, to open up our hearts and our minds, to seek your truth, to set our minds on your truth, that we might glorify you in this moment as you minister to us by your spirit through your word. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have been preaching through the book of Colossians, and we have reached a pivotal point in this letter. As in most of Paul's letters, they begin always with a heavy dose of theology, and then at some point in the letter, he transitions to giving pastoral counsel. And so if you're reading one of his letters, typically in the first few chapters, you're going to be reading Paul making theological claims. And then usually in the last few chapters, he issues apostolic commands for the church that are drawn from the theology that he gave previously. So in our case, here in Colossians, we've seen already in chapters 1 and 2, Paul developing a very strong robust theology of Christ. Jesus is presented for us as king and champion over the dominion of darkness. He is exalted as supreme over all things in creation and in redemption. He is called the head of the church. He is the firstborn. He is preeminent. And that is why, that is why Christ is a sufficient Savior. There is no angelic power, no spiritual source, no system of spirituality that needs to be supplemented to Christ in order to save us. We have all we need in Christ himself. And now, here in chapter 3, Paul starts to draw out those implications. So if Christ is supreme and he is a sufficient Savior, then what does this now mean 
for your growth as a Christian? What, what does this mean for your marriage as a Christian or for your parenting or for your work? Or what about your witness and, and your engagement with, with society at large? That's where Paul goes in chapters 3 and in 4. But here, in the very first four verses of chapter 3, Paul is going to do something for us. He is going to first remind us of what is a Christian. Before he tells us what a Christian should do, he reminds us what a Christian is. He stresses being a Christian before doing the works of one. And so, friends, this morning, our passage is focused on Christian identity. We're asking the question, what is a Christian? How do you know who is a Christian? How can you tell? Well, one of the points that Paul is going to be stressing is that you can't just tell by how the person looks or, or by really any other human standard. The Christian person may not appear to be all that impressive. Maybe they don't look like a saint, and so you wouldn't think much of them. They wouldn't really stand out to you. But all that is gold does not glitter. That's a line from one of my favorite books. I have shared with you a while back that my daughter and I are reading through The Lord of the Rings. Uh, we, we finished it earlier this year. We, we've moved on to some of Tolkien's other works, but man, we still love Lord of the Rings. And one of my favorite characters is Aragorn, son of Arathorn, the rightful heir of the kingdom, kingdoms of Gondor and Arnor. Those are two related kingdoms of men in Middle-earth that have for centuries lacked a king on the throne. But when we first meet Aragorn in the book, he's actually introduced as Strider. He's dressed in the simple garb of a ranger. A ranger, uh, they were skilled fighters who patrolled the countryside, you know, resisting evil uh, that, that, that they came across. Um, the hobbits are initially wary of trusting this man. Strider comes across as rather dark and, and brooding. He's, he's rather mysterious. They don't know what to think of him. That is, until they're handed a letter from their wizard friend Gandalf, who informs them that he is the one who asked Strider to find them and to safely guide the hobbits to Rivendell. And so you can trust him, despite appearances. And then Gandalf quotes a poem written about Strider that begins, All that is gold does not glitter. Tolkien is playing off of a famous line in Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice that says, all that glitters is not gold. There, Shakespeare meant that you shouldn't always be impressed by all that is shiny and impressive. But Tolkien, he flipped the sentence, and therefore he flipped the meaning of it. All that is gold does not glitter means that Aragon is vastly more impressive than he looks. You're underestimating him if you only look on the outside. It's like how we would typically say today, don't judge a book by its cover. You can't tell a person's true identity by how they look. 
And I think that's one of the most important points to make if we're going to be talking about Christian identity. You can't tell who is a Christian just by how they look. So picture with me two guys. The first guy grew up in church, still actively involved in church. He's got a heart for the poor. He can quote to you scripture. He can answer your theological questions. He seems like a really nice guy, and he probably is, but that doesn't make him a Christian. In this case, we're dealing with a good guy who grew up in a good, wholesome Christian environment. He has Christian values. He exhibits Christian behavior, but he's not actually a Christian. Now, the second guy grew up in a different environment, pretty secular, pretty godless. For much of his life, he had nothing to do with Christ. He didn't share Christian values. He didn't exhibit Christian behavior, but something happened to him. And now he identifies as a Christian. According to human standards, to how we would typically judge who is a Christian, he doesn't seem to pass. But that, again, is where we have to remember. A true Christian may not appear all that impressive. All that is gold does not glitter. So, friends, let's go to our text. Let's ask the question, what is a Christian? And I think we can answer in three different ways. If you want to follow along, look in your bulletin. There's an outline. First, a Christian is someone whose life is raised with Christ. Second, a Christian is someone whose life is hidden with Christ. And third, someone whose life is Christ. So first, a Christian is the person whose life is raised with Christ. That's Paul's answer for us. If you ask someone on the street, what's a Christian? They might say a Christian is a moral person. A Christian is a church-going person, a religious person. Paul would say a Christian could be those things, but fundamentally, a Christian is a resurrected person. Read verse 1 with me again. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Now, like we said, Paul here in chapter 3 is about to offer some pastoral counsel, but he is speaking to those that he assumes are Christians. And he begins this chapter with that assumption. If then you are a Christian, then do this. But how exactly did he phrase it? How did he put it? If then you have been raised with Christ. So apparently being raised with Christ is fundamental to being a Christian. Now let's, let's think through this. To be raised with Christ assumes a few truths that Paul has already covered earlier in this letter. It obviously implies, if you have been raised with Christ, it implies that somehow you were already dead. If we were raised, if we were resurrected, then by implication, all of us must have been in a state of death. And that's what Paul said earlier in chapter 2, verse 13. There he describes all of us as dead, as in dead in our sins. You who were dead in your trespasses. That's chapter 2, verse 13. This 
my friends, is a death that affects all of us, that affects all of mankind because we all trace our heritage back to the first man. Do you realize that Adam is not just our first father? He is our federal head. Now, if you're not familiar with that theological concept of Adam being a federal head, well, then just think about it this way. In our federal government, our federal head would be the president. He's the head of the nation. He represents and speaks for all citizens of our nation. And it doesn't matter if you want him to represent you or not. Even if he wasn't your choice, the fact remains that by, be, by, by virtue of being an American citizen, the president is your federal head. Well, the same goes for Adam. You could argue, I didn't choose Adam to represent me. I, I want to represent myself. But the fact remains, by virtue of you being a human created in the image of God, the first human, Adam, functions as your federal head. Now, what that means theologically is that whatever Adam does extends to you. Well, what did Adam do? According to Genesis chapter 3, Adam distrusted and disobeyed God, which resulted in death, and not just physical death. Genesis 3 describes a spiritual death resulting in spiritual captivity to sin. Just think back with me to when God placed Adam in the garden. He warned of what would happen if you ate of that tree, of the fruit of that tree. He said, for in the day that you eat of it, in that day you shall surely die. But when it finally did happen, when Adam ate, he, he didn't drop dead that day. The Bible says he actually went on to live for 930 years. So what was happening? Was God just kidding around when he, about surely dying in the day that you eat of the tree? No, God wasn't kidding. God didn't change his mind. A death truly did occur that day. It was a spiritual death. And the point that we're making here is that it affected, that death affected more than just Adam. As our federal head, whatever Adam does extends to us. What he experienced, we experience. And that's why every human since Adam is, by nature, born alive, yet born dead. Our hearts work just fine in terms of beating and pumping blood through our veins, but by nature, our hearts are cold and dead when it comes to love towards God. Our minds are functioning in terms of processing data and recalling memories, but by nature, our minds are ignorant to the glory of Christ and his gospel. In terms of biological life, we are all alive and well. But in terms of spiritual life, there are going to be people here and people in your life who are unresponsive as a corpse when it comes to God and to the gospel. And that's what it means to be spiritually dead. 
dead in your trespasses. That's the first state of death that Paul says all of us are under. It's a universal problem. But friends, that's not the end of the story. There's a different death that actually resolves the problem of this spiritual deadness in all of us. And Paul already made mention of this death as well. Look with me in chapter 2, verse 20. Chapter 2, verse 20, if with Christ you died. So chapter 2, verse 13 refers to sharing in the death of the first Adam. That's for all of us because Adam is a federal head for all of humanity. But chapter 2, verse 20 refers to us sharing in the death of the last Adam. Christians are those from among the spiritually dead who share in the death of Adam. Christians are those who now, by grace, share in the death of Christ. We have died with Christ. That means his death is counted as your death. That means what happens, what has now happened for a Christian is that you have entered into a federal relationship with Christ where he now serves as your new federal head. That's what it means to be a Christian. You're no longer in Adam You're in Christ. So everything Jesus does now extends to you. What he experienced, you experience. So because he died on the cross, you died on the cross. The sentence of death that all of us deserve because of our sins, it wasn't just ignored. It wasn't just put aside. No, it was actually carried out. Justice against our sins was served, just not on our head, but on our federal head, on Christ. With Christ, we have died to sin and to sin's judgment. Friends, All of that, all of that theology right there is necessary background for you to understand this phrase in our text, if then you have been raised with Christ. Fundamental to Christian identity is having died with Christ in his death and having been raised with Christ in his resurrection. But now let's think about this. In what sense... Are we resurrected people? I mean, I I don't know about you, but I don't feel resurrected. If I'm resurrected, then why does my back always get so sore when I'm on my feet for so long? Or why do I still have this this lingering cough that I can't seem to get over? doesn't really make that much sense to say that I have been resurrected, that I have been raised with Christ. And Paul goes on to describe where Christ is. He, he says he's seated at the right hand of God. So that seems to imply that Christians who have been raised with Christ are as well raised and seated with Christ at the right hand of God. But, I mean, you're right here in this room. You're seated in pews. How does it make any sense to say that if you're a Christian, you're seated at the right hand of God? Now, if the verb in verse 1 was in the future tense, it would make perfect sense. If verse 1 said, 
If then you will one day be raised with Christ and be seated with him at the right hand of God, well, that's not all that surprising. I mean, all Christians hope for a future bodily resurrection. We hope to be resurrected in glory, to be seated one day at his right hand. But the amazing thing is that Paul is speaking in the past tense. You have been raised. How are we to understand this? Is Paul speaking figuratively? No, my friends. He's speaking federally. You may not be physically seated at God's right hand, but please do not conclude that this is just a metaphor, that this language is not describing something real. You may not be physically seated at the right hand of God, but you are there federally, with Christ, through Christ. And friends, that is real. That is a real experience. You are really there, seated at the right hand of God, because Christ, your head, is really there. So meditate with me on what this means. If you have been raised with Christ, if you truly are seated with him right now at the right hand of God, then that means you are fully welcomed and accepted by God just as you are. Think about that. The right hand of God is the highest seat of honor, and that's where you are seated by virtue of your union with Christ, your federal head. Christian, do you realize that everything that is true of Christ is true of you? Just as Jesus is honored in the eyes of God, you are honored. Just as Jesus is loved by the Father, you are loved. Can you comprehend that? The Father loves you exactly as he loves his Son. That is mind-blowing. Now, I know you may not feel that way. You may not look that way. But all that is gold does not glitter. If you are raised with Christ, you are vastly more valuable than you appear. I think our problem is that we are just too accustomed to seeking things on the earth, to focusing on human standards and making human judgments. What we need to do is we need to, to start seeking things that are above and to start looking at everything else from that heavenly perspective. That's what Paul's calling us to do. But friends, don't be surprised if if your resurrected life doesn't seem to glitter right now because Paul said so much in our text. This leads to our second point. What is a Christian? A Christian is raised with Christ, but a Christian is someone whose life is hidden with Christ. Look with me in verses 2 to 3. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now this idea of having your 
life hidden with Christ in God could be interpreted and applied in one of two different ways. And they're, they're not mutually exclusive. They, they, they both could be true. Now, the first way of understanding your life being hidden with Christ in God is in terms of shelter and protection. So it's kind of like how David sang of God's divine protection in Psalm 27, verse 5. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. So biblical salvation is often depicted in this very way. To be saved is to be hidden in God. He serves as a shelter for us. And so if, if you're not hidden with Christ in God, if Adam is still your federal head, then just like Adam, you're going to try to hide your shame relying on self-made concealments, turning to fig leaves of human effort. The point that Paul was making in last week's passage that we looked at is how self-made religion can't deal adequately with your sin and shame. It leaves you always exposed. The question, the question that God posed to Adam in the garden is still the question that he poses to you. Where are you? Where are you hiding? Who or what have you turned to for protection? Friends, the only safe shelter in the day of trouble, the only refuge from the storm of God's judgment against sin is with Christ in God. That's one comforting interpretation of what it means to have your life hidden with Christ in God. But there's another sense of this uh, verse that, uh, of, of what it means to have our lives hidden with Christ that I, I think this interpretation fits the larger context better. You know, the only other place in Colossians where Paul uses this term hidden is found earlier. We looked at this passage earlier in chapter 1, verse 26. That's where he was describing the gospel as a mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now, now it's revealed to the saints. So Paul was saying that the gospel was hazy and hidden for ages, but now it's been revealed with the coming of Christ. And so in the same way, if you interpret it similarly, what that means is that our true identities in Christ are hazy and, and hidden right now to the eyes of the world. Every single Christian looks unimpressive compared to who they actually are raised with Christ. Even the, even the godliest believer that you know, like who, who, is, who is selfless and sacrificial, who has a pure heart and a generous spirit, even that person looks more like coal than the diamond that he or she is in Christ. Paul is saying that our true identities are presently hidden. They are imperceivable to the world until, until the appearing of Christ. 
as verse 4 says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We will finally be revealed as sons and daughters of God. Listen to 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, who, uh, which says something similar. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And that reminds me of something that C.S. Lewis said in his famous address called The Weight of Glory. He says, if you saw a Christian in the fullness of his or her glory, you might even be tempted to worship that person. Listen to these words. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you could talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Lewis also wrote a book called The Great Divorce. It's a parable in which uh, the narrator goes uh, to heaven and is given a tour uh, with, with a guide showing him around. And there's this moment where he sees this parade of bright spirits dancing and, and singing all in honor of this one lady who shines brighter than the rest. And, and the narrator is just blown away by her beauty. He's captivated by her glory. And he turns to his guide and he whispers, is it, uh, is it? And, and, and he's trying to, to think and, and, and to name some famous historical figure or celebrity long dead. But the guide quickly interrupts. No, not, not at all. It's someone you've never heard of. Her name on earth, was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golders Green. Now this, of course, confuses the narrator, but, but she seems to be, well, a, a person of particular importance. I, answers the guide, she is one of the great ones. Have you not heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are two quite different things? Like we said earlier, you can't tell a person's true identity just by how they look. Because all that is gold does not glitter. You can't go by looks and behavior alone. The most unassuming person out there who doesn't look like much and hasn't accomplished much, who will never be in the spotlight, who will never be famous, not even Christian famous, that person may have died with Christ and has been raised with Christ. So right now, their life is hidden with Christ in God. You can't see it, but their true life, their true identity is part of that mystery to be revealed in fullness at the second coming of Christ. If you could see their true identity now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. And let's face it, friends, that unassuming, unimpressive person that we speak of, 
It's really us. It's you. It's me. We're all familiar with feelings of discouragement and disappointment because life didn't go exactly as we had planned in our early 20s. You know, we didn't achieve all of our ambitions. We didn't meet all of our goals. And, and our experience of the Christian life has never been as bold or as transformative as we had expected. We're still struggling with the same sins, bearing the same baggage, dealing with the same issues. Brothers and sisters, this is where we have to live, by faith and not by sight. By faith, trust Paul when he says that your true life, your true identity is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's conclude by looking at verse 4 a bit more carefully, specifically where it says for us, Christ, who is your life, This is our third point. Let's answer this question. What is a Christian? A Christian is someone whose life is Christ. For Christ to be your life is the most defining characteristic of a Christian. The essence of what it means to be a Christian is not not that I am someone trying to be like Christ, or someone trying to obey Christ, or even someone trying to love Christ. Though all of those things are true and necessary, the essence of what it means to be a Christian is that Christ is my life. That's what Paul's trying to get at in verse 2, where he says to set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Friends, to set your mind on something is to essentially, to make it your life, to set your mind on earthly things, be it a person, a possession, a pursuit, a passion, to set your mind on that thing is to make that thing your life. Students set their minds on academic achievement and it becomes their life. Professionals set their minds on career advancement and it becomes their life. Lovers set their mind on each other and they become each other's life. That's how it works. Now, how do you know what you set your mind on? How do you know what has become your life? Well, just ask yourself this question. What passions, what pursuits, what possessions, what people, what things In your life, if you were to lose them, if they were taken away, would make you feel like you don't have a life at all. If losing that thing or having that thing fail you or disappoint you, if that would make you feel like life has pretty much lost its point, then it's clear that that thing is your life. You've set your mind on it to such an extent that it has become your life. But here's the problem. You're going to find yourself in a never-ending cycle of pride or despair depending on whether you have achieved what you have set your mind on. And so if you get what you're chasing, 
If you make it to the top, well, then you feel pride in yourself. But if you fail to obtain it, or if you lose it, or if it turns out to be woefully unsatisfying, then you feel a sense of despair. Friends, the only way, the only way to handle the successes and failures of life without it always resulting in either pride or despair, the only way is to make Christ your life. When you set your mind on Christ, when he's not just your ticket to heaven, when he's not just your answer to a guilty conscience, when he's not just an inspiration, an example for you, but when Jesus is your life, then you are free. You are free to experience success or failure without it inflating you or crushing you. You can look at the things of this earth. You can look at that object. You can look at that person. You can look at that dream that you might lose, and you could say, you're not my life. Christ is my life. You're a good thing, and I would be grateful to have you in my life, but if I never have you, or if I do but eventually lose you, my life won't be over. My life will go on, and my life will one day appear in glory because Christ is my life. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pray. Father, thank you that by your grace you have rescued us from our sin and you have transferred us to the kingdom of your Son, where he serves as our Lord, our Savior, our federal head. All that is true of him is true of us. And as he is raised and seated at your right hand, Lord, help us to truly believe that is where we are right now, through Christ, with Christ. And I pray, Lord, that that reality will sink down deep into our hearts, our minds, and it will shape the way we see things the way we feel things, the way we think about things, the way we treat people, the way we carry ourselves from this day forth. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.